not a lot of Australians want to do that work and you know people do that work because they're so desperate to stay in this country but what when you get in when you're expected to pay to work so hard to get paid absolutely pennies and then they charge you extortionate money for accommodation just on top of that this week on Dirty Linen, we have been heading to the regions to talk to people about rural labour, working in on farms, picking fruit, picking veg, getting produce to the tables of Australians. Uh, today, we're going to talk to somebody who has been on a working holiday visa, is one of the nationals that we are now sadly lacking in regional Australia. There is There aren't enough people to pick our fruit because the working holiday visa holders, the backpackers, are simply not around. Her name is Georgina Dent. She is an extremely talented young chef and Australia just needs to hang on to her. Uh, welcome to Dirty Linen, Georgie. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So last time we spoke, it was in the depths of winter. Um, we were talking about your visa status and the job that you had at Anchovy Restaurant in uh, Melbourne's Richmond. They were desperate to sponsor you, to have you have you as a permanent member of their staff because they could see um, how much you were going to bring to their business. And basically they invested a, a complete government grant that they were given at the very start of the pandemic by the, by the Victorian government, um, that $10,000 grant went basically to you to keeping you in the country um how have things panned out since then has there been any updates on your um on your sponsorship and your role at anchovy uh no um no updates on the visa but i think there is a massive backlog at the minute with like visas going through so who knows i could they said up to six months but it's been longer than six months now so i could be waiting up to two years but yeah i was just super fortunate to get that sponsorship like from anchovy especially like two months just before my visa was going to end as well so very lucky and obviously i'm so happy to still be here and then under the leadership of t and jy yeah so um so at the moment that would mean that you're on a bridging visa is that right yeah that's correct yeah Okay, so sort of in a bit of a limbo land, but, um, you know, I think they will have dotted the I's and crossed the T's and the wheels will hopefully grind and eventually you'll have your sponsorship and be on the pathway to permanent residency. I think one of the things that JY&T at Anchovy were so impressed with about you was your your varied experience and all the different things that you've done as a chef. And I think also you, you've got a really clear vision and ambition, don't you? Like you just love learning, love cooking. Tell us a little bit about yourself as a cook. Um, so since I think I was the age of 11, I kind of knew that I wanted to cook from both of my parents being chefs. I think that really like came on to me and, you know, just from such a young age, really wanting to know what I wanted to do, just done me well. And then obviously working back in the UK and then coming here, uh, I've never really, Vietnamese is a totally new cuisine for me. So it's actually like almost like learning to cook again, which is actually like, you know, really exciting. And sometimes you in cooking, you need something to, you know, refresh yourself. And this is just like a, a new beginning for me. So I'm pretty excited. And, you know, it's just a beginning for me at Anchovy as I've got a four-year sponsorship. So I'm looking forward to what's to come in the future. Tell us about you and, and butchery because I know that getting in whole animals is such a big part of what anchovy does and, and one of the reasons that they found it hard to uh, find uh, 
the sort of employee that they needed locally, they just didn't have people applying that had those skills to actually break down an animal. Uh, how come you've got those skills? I think it's not a lot of, it's not the skills a lot of chefs have nowadays because there's actually not a wide range of restaurants that get in whole animals or maybe it's not the fact that they can't get them in the space and sometimes maybe the money it costs or like you said people don't have the skills to break down whole animals but actually started when I was working in the UK so I was working at restaurant Sat Baines and I think I spent just about over a year and a half there maybe like a year and nine months and I kind of I felt like I maybe needed a little bit of a break from the kitchen just not almost like a break but just to do something new you know and maybe like just work a few less hours and you know just do something that's going to benefit myself but not like just give up so I thought so there's a a butcher's in Cornwall called Philip Warren's and I just emailed them out of chance I didn't honestly think that they would say yes and then they were like yeah Georgina we would love to have you so, yeah, I just did like a four-month stint at uh, Butcher's in Cornwall, which was so amazing. It was so much fun. I mean, it was freezing in there. It was like a five-degree work area, just working in a big fridge with 50 men. So <laughs> sometimes it was challenging, but it was it was such a good experience that I'm so glad I got to have. Okay, well, let's talk about another experience that you got to have, and that's... Um your rural your time in the regions of Australia so just do you want to just explain to us uh, you came here as on a working holiday visa can you just explain to us the structure of that visa and the obligations that fall upon you if you want to extend it so I came here on a working holiday visa which you get granted for one year and you're only allowed to work at one job for six months and then to stay an extra year, you have to complete three months or 88 days of regional farm work. So I got to the end of my time at, at the time I was working at the press club. And I knew I had like four or five months to get my farm work done because they say they say you should always leave yourself extra time. So, yeah, I applied for so many jobs doing regional work and then I managed to get a place up in Bundaberg picking lemons and mandarins. So tell us about that. I mean, what did you, how did you go into that work? Were you, I mean, obviously you don't mind putting yourself uh, up for new experiences, but what was your sort of attitude as, as you were applying for jobs and as you were heading up to Bundaberg? Honestly, to be honest, I'd been offered sponsorship at my first job, Matilda, but I turned it down because I wanted to experience farm work. I think everyone was a little bit shocked, but it was just something that I really wanted to do because there were so many things said about farm work. So I think I was just going in with an attitude that I was going into the totally unknown, you know. For the first time since starting work when I was 16, I was doing something I had no idea about, which was probably like mm. a little bit scary and a little bit daunting, but I mean... How do you think how hard can picking fruit be? But then you do hear stories. So so tell us what it was like. What what happened when you got up to Bundaberg? Um, Set the scene for us. Oh, my God. Honestly, yeah. So I got a, I got to Bundaberg and I'd, I've been travelling, but I've never stayed in a hostel before. So we get to Bundaberg and we get to the hostel and... 
I was like, wait, are we in the right place? And I look around, like, it's, bearing in mind this place, we had to pay $220 a week for accommodation. So shared bathroom, there was only like five toilets and showers. I think up to 100 people can live there. Whoa. And then there was no air conditioning and it was boiling hot. It was like 35 degrees. And I think I just had a little cry, to be honest. <laughs> I just sat in the room and I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. So I was like, look, let's just like stick it out for this week. And then if this is just so unimaginable that you don't think we could do it, like, let's leave. So, God, it was so hard. And then, yeah, the next day, I think we just started work. We had to crack on. And then I think once you start to meet people, it does get all right. But, I mean, the work never gets any easier. But describe the work to us and also what the mode of payment was. Like, how are you paid? Right. So (laughs) the mode of paid is you only get paid for what you pick. So it's piece rate. So, which I think the bin, so we were picking lemons and mandarins on like a 150 acre farm. It was absolutely massive. And I think in total, there was about 300 pickers. So there were so many of us. And I think in those 300 pickers, there was only four Australian people that like we, that I'd seen come through. Yeah, it was crazy. And so... The bins are like 500 kilos, so you have to load your bin with 500 kilos of, like, lemons or mandarins. And it's $180 for a bin of lemons. And normally you pick in twos because it's faster. You can pick on your own, but I think to start with, it's probably best not to pick on your own. And But I just can't. Okay, 500 kilos sounds like a lot. So what are you actually carrying around with you are you carrying a a bag or like what's what's the actual setup so you're carrying a brown bag around your neck that also gets tied around your waist and then you kind of and then also you're carrying this huge probably 12 15 foot ladder that's so heavy and then so when you get to a tree you pick all of the the way you're like shown or the fastest way is probably someone starts picking at the bottom while someone is in the top of the tree. So your ladder has two legs at the front and then one big like pole at the back, but you have to kind of throw and jab it into the tree. And then you climb up the ladder, pick your lemons with a little snipper, but there's only a certain way you can pick the lemons because these lemons are like the most precious thing in the world to these, like to these farmers, you know, so Every, and you're wearing gloves, it's 35 degrees, you're absolutely boiling hot. And then you get a little ring size to, to pick the lemons and you can't, if the lemon falls through the ring, it, has, it just goes on the floor, too small, just goes on the floor. And then you, yeah, pick, and then, and then you, gent, you have to put them in your bag gently cause, so you don't break the skin. And if the bin smells of lemons, that means you've been too rough for the lemons and you're not going to get paid for it. So how many kilos would the bag that you're carrying hold? I mean, it depends how many you want to, like, really throw in. So I'd probably say you could probably fit about maybe 10, 10, 15 kilo in the bag. 
It's quite a lot of lemons. Yeah. So you're up and down ladders walking back to the bin and is it like each person has one of those 500 kilo bins or you share it with your partner or whatever? Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. Like you choose someone to buddy up with and yeah, that's how it usually works. Yeah. And then you just got like you go as fast as you can to like fill up how many bins you can on a day. And how many hours a day would you be up there? So we started at 6am and we came back at like 5. We finished at 5. Yeah, it's a big day. And would they feed you? No, you have to bring your own lunch and water. Okay. And so what? what's the sort of standard, like what, what did you earn in a day? How much of your bin did you manage to fill? Honestly, I think it kind of depended on my mood, which probably sounds actually really bad. Um, I probably tried to pick. Uh, three bins a day, which is like one and a half each. Wow. But there was... That's a lot. Uh, yeah, but you got to think there's so much time to do it and you want to get paid. So <laughs> you kind of... I mean, there, honestly, I'm not going to lie. There were some days where I think I just sat under the tree and I was like, not today. And uh, we'd have times... So if it's raining, we're not allowed to pick lemons. So sometimes if it, if it was like going to be really bad weather in the night and then in the morning they would just cancel our work. So that means we also don't get paid. And then sometimes we would go to the farm and it would start raining and then we would have to stop picking, everyone stop picking, wait, in, wait under the trees until it stopped raining and then wait for the lemons to dry and then start picking again. So sometimes if it's like raining and you just sometimes can't guarantee the weather, you know. So it, that was such a nightmare. And how were your 88 days counted? Like if you if you picked one lemon, was that counted as a day or, or you know, was there some sort of, you know, you had to get a certain number of hours for it to count as one of your 88 days? I think with peace rate, they... Peace rate, they don't know how many hours you've worked or it doesn't matter how many hours you've worked because if you're still going in and you, maybe you've just picked half a bin, a quarter of a bin, it still classes as, um, you know, a day of work. Yeah. So, and Georgina, you had a health situation that you were dealing with in amongst all this, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what a nightmare. Uh, I actually did, yeah, my appendix burst, I think, I just two months before. So how did that affect your time up um, in Bundaberg? I think for me, I was just pretty cautious about how much I was lifting because I was I was advised by the doctors after my surgery not to do any, because I couldn't walk for a month after, so it was quite a long recovery. And then I wasn't allowed to do any heavy lifting for a few months. But I had no choice to do my farm work, otherwise I would have had to go home and I just really did not want to go home. So I thought pursuing the farm work was the best idea. So not really um, <laughs> aligned with your doctor's advice. No heavy lifting. Oh, I'll just climb up and down some trees for 88 days and pick some lemons. That sounds that sounds like a good thing to do. I know, it probably wasn't the best. Um, was it scary? Like if I think about myself, like aiming a spike at a tree and climbing up a ladder and getting uh, with a heavy bag around my neck and picking some lemons, I feel like I'm going to be scared. What, how did you like cope with that sort of, yeah, being up above the ground on a ladder and, you know, a, a, a big weight to carry around? 
I think it does take a little while to get used to it, actually. I mean, you go in the first day you're there, that you go in for a practice. Like, I think they just give you one thing, one tree to practice on. You put the ladder in, show them you can walk up, and then you walk back down, and then they're like, right, okay, you're good to pick lemons. <laughs> okay. And that's how, it, and that's, that's the health and safety training. And they said, if you see a snake, just scream and we'll come on over. So that was pretty rogue, but... So did you feel like this was just another another experience that you could chalk down in the big adventure of your life or did you feel, or or and, or did you feel like you were being exploited? Honestly, oh, I'm actually pretty disappointed on... I don't really know who to blame, but... I'm, pretty disappointed in how they let farm work run considering now that they're so in the shit so in the shit for workers because basically you know we've all gone home because there's no support in this country whatsoever for actually the people that are quite important here and do and I'm not being funny but not of I don't think not a lot of Australians want to do that work and you know, people do that work because they're so desperate to stay in this country. But what when you get in, when you're expected to pay to work so hard to get paid absolutely pennies, and then they charge you extortionate money for accommodation just on top of that? Yeah, it's actually quite upsetting. It, it is because I mean, it's like you're being held hostage by your visa conditions. And you felt like you had no choice because you wanted to stay here. You felt like you had no choice but to put your health at risk against doctor's advice to go and lift heavy things. And it doesn't sound like you were given um, the right impression of what the conditions were going to be or what the work was going to be like. And, I mean, you speak English, you know, like you've got that advantage. I imagine for people uh, whose first language isn't English that there'd be the challenges would just be amplified yeah I think honestly no one really prepares you for actually like how hard it's gonna be and it's not it's not really mentally draining but it's so physically draining and honestly the work is so hard like not only do you have to like you're spending so much money on food because you know this is taking so much energy so you're eating so much food and then also, like, I think there were some days it reached 40 degrees and I was just like, oh, my God, like, this is just so hot. Like, how can I carry on? But, I mean, you've got to pay for accommodation at the end of the day and no one's just going to be like, oh, don't worry about paying rent this week because you couldn't pick enough lemons, you know. So, and what about the food situation? Like you said, you've got to bring your own lunch. Did you also have to make your own dinner? And and what were the what options were there for purchasing food? I mean, were you sort of held hostage to that as well? No. So there's nothing on the farm whatsoever. So they, I think you get a letter saying, bring your own food and bring your own water. I think there was water taps on the on the farm to fill up your water bottle but you had to have a water bottle. And if you don't bring lunch, well, then you're not eating. So, yeah, and cooking your own food at the hostel. 
And so was the hostel in Bundaberg, so there was like supermarkets or whatever where you could buy food to make make dinner for yourself and, and set yourself up with breakfast? Yeah, there, there was a few things around, yeah, which was probably quite handy. And then the farm was, I think, like just a half an hour drive from the hostel, which a bus just takes you. Right. So it wasn't like you could hunt around for other other accommodation. It was like it was all hooked into the one one system. Well, yeah, the hostel is actually like, I think they call it like a working hostel. So they organise the work for you. Right. So you're pretty much bound bound to it. So did you stay at the Lemon Farm for your whole 88 days? I actually didn't. Towards my, I think, I think my last three weeks, I went to a packing shed. And was that like, you're just like, okay, I cannot look at another lemon, find, get me something else or had the work finished or what was the story? Well, it was at, I actually got offered um, the packing shed with like more money because a packing shed is actually hourly pay. Right. So I think they just needed people on the packing shed and it goes by like who's been at the farm the longest or like on the waiting list for this. I honestly don't really know how it works, but I just got picked to go to the avocado farm. Uh, it was on the like roster the net on on the board the next day. Georgina going to the avocado packing shed, and then yeah. So what? Is, so you've you're you've been gone back to chefing. You've done your eighty eight days. You're in a whole other you know visa category now. What, how do you look back on that experience? Ooh. <laughs> You know what? I am glad I done it, but also I can't. I just want to. There's no way for me to stress like how hard that visa workers work. Like you know, picking, like you said at the start of the podcast, you know, picking the fruit and vegetables that we eat on our plates every day, and you know, I've seen the prices of like lemons in the shops recently, and they're like sky high. But I know they own, like, Coles, who we actually pick lemons for, and Woolworths, like, charging absolutely off the rocket for these lemons. But then the workers are getting paid absolutely pennies. So, I don't know, like, how is this getting lost in, like, a middleman or, you know, I just don't understand how we can be exploited so much. I wonder if that 88 days is some kind of formula where it's like, you know, at 90 days people start organising and, and uprising and there's a revolution because they just won't stand for it anymore. I mean, the system seems, you know, designed to, you, you just, it, like you'll you'll get through it. You know, you're out the other side and you just never want to think about it again. Uh, it, I, it's just yeah, I just wonder how it's calibrated. It seems calibrated to put people who are able to be exploited in a situation where they are exploited. And I suppose, you know, we do have a food supply chain that in many ways tries to keep the price of food down. And you can say, yeah, that's good. You know, people should be able to afford produce, but they shouldn't be able to afford it because people are being exploited along the way. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's interesting you know obviously it's bad that there aren't people around to pick the fruit but if that's if that labor shortage causes us to rethink the way that the industry works then maybe that is a good thing it's a rethink that really needs to happen yeah I was gonna say I absolutely agree it's definitely something you know they need to it's definitely something that needs to be in discussion and definitely like rethinked yeah um what would you say to 
you know, that we, we've had on the show recently, um, thankful for farmers who are starting an initiative to get Australian kids who have just left school, you know, they can't do their gap year of backpacking around Europe, getting them to go and pick fruit and veg instead. Do you, what do you think? Do you think that's going to fly or do you think that things are going to have to change before Aussie kids do, do that sort of work? You know, I think that's such an amazing thing to see as kids because I was just saying to my partner the other day actually that, you know, nobody gets taught to grow fruit and vegetables at school. You know, nobody gets taught where food is, where food actually comes from. So I think to learn that from a young age is actually so important and it's such an amazing skill to have you know, to be able to learn. Like I was saying, um, we were actually at the beach early and she was saying, oh, I'd love my kid to be able to surf. And I said, I've always wanted to live on a farm when I'm older. And I said, yeah, but... And she was like, oh, yeah, but they won't be able to do that if we live on a farm. And I said, yeah, but they're going to have food for life. So I think it's <laughs> it is such an important skill, but, I mean, like you said... Uh, you know, we don't want to see our kids, like, see, see people getting exploited for what, for also what they eat. Yeah. Well, we don't, we don't want to see anybody get exploited. Like, it's simply not right to bring people from overseas and um, to send them out of sight, out of mind onto farms simply because they want to stay in Australia. It's like, it's just... It's just not the way it should be. I mean, when I think about what you're contributing to our restaurant and, you know, what you will contribute for, you know, decades to come, I just think this is not the kind of welcome mat that we want to throw out for a person like you or for any person. Of, of course, like you, you, need to, you need to work for a living and you need to contribute. But I think um, just, it, just sounds, it just sounds too shonky and that the way that the machine is built is uh, leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, just you've, you've you've had quite a bit of experience at different ins and outs of Australia's immigration uh, system. What's your overall impression of the way Australia brings or allows people in from overseas? Ooh, uh, do you know what I think it's a good system where they where they actually do let work like they do let you come here on a working holiday visa for one year and I think the price I paid for that was 500 pounds so I think 1,000 1,000 dollars probably maybe something a little bit different with the exchange right now so you know that is a good system I can come here work for six months in one place work for six months in another place and then I can do farm work for three months to stay another year or I can do farm work for six months to get another year on top of that. But it's whether, and I know there's farm work that is probably a lot easier and there's definitely farm work that I've heard like picking bananas is so much harder what, you know, than what I've done. So it's kind of like a balance out. Well, if you get lucky, farm work can be such an amazing experience and so much fun for you. Or if you don't get so lucky and there's just not that many jobs at the time, then you are going to end up doing something shit for the next three months or six months, however long you to can, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
But when you were on the lemon farm, did you actually make any money each week? Oh, well, I, do you know what? I think I probably would have made money if I didn't drink so much on the weekends. <laughs> but when, I think when it was such a new life for me, living in a hostel and being around so many like people, whereas in the kitchens, we like I didn't have that such like free environment, you know, where, you know, I wasn't doing a job that I loved and I wasn't pursuing something I didn't want to do. So I didn't really have like a direction for my farm work. I just wanted to get it done and then get back to the kitchen. So I think for that, for that three months, I was kind of just maybe just probably very relaxed. So I think throughout the week, I just tried to work as hard, earn some money. And then on the weekend, that was it. Like everyone just wanted to release, I think, and drink in the bar where actually the drinks were probably quite cheap. So honestly, I actually, I don't think I saved any money whatsoever. And rent was so expensive, you know, so there was, I think, like I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, there was like a whole week, eight days, I think it rained. So for that eight days, like we just didn't have work and there was just like no money coming in. So you had to be ready for those rainy days as well. Mm, that's really tough. Um, Georgina, tell us what you're doing at the moment at Anchovy. Tell us about the, the summer that Anchovy set up for itself. Oh, well, so... How long has everything been open now? We've been, I think, what, almost a month now everything's been open. So, we obviously, we was just doing takeaway. And then once that, once that stopped and everything got reopened, I think we took a week just to decide what we were going to do. And then we'd also set up, to do weekends at Sutton Grange Winery. So we would travel up on a Saturday morning and get ready for Saturday and Sunday lunch, doing a tasting menu. Meanwhile, on a Friday, we were still doing barn mia anchovy. And then last week was our first Friday night service. I think we did it on our takeaway for a couple of nights and it just popped off. So we're actually serving Viet Cajun broil up, doing it a little bit different with like Vietnamese flavors in there with like premium seafood. And it's just so good. Like you get stuck in with a few friends at the table. We can give you gloves if you want and just cracking into some seafood with a few sides and yeah I think that's the approach we've took just at the minute where we can actually only have a certain amount of people in the dining room because we're a small venue so I think we're just trying to make the most out of our space for what we can do. Wow that sounds so awesome (laughs) I reckon that would be great I'm gonna book in. Oh my god Uh, yeah I asked for the night off I was like you don't need me can I come in? (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Um, Georgina, it's such a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's uh, really important to get get this um, this sort of info out there into the community. Um, and, yeah, I'm so glad you're in Melbourne. May you, may your, I wish you good, uh, good Department of Home Affairs luck. May you get a letter soon telling you that your sponsorship's all approved and it's all official. I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said farm work was so bad, but <laughs> no, it was good. But, yeah, I'm so glad to be here.
Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. See ya. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.